Welcome to the Jerry T Podcast. Uh, this is a special and probably pretty scuffed episode where I'm currently sitting in a hotel room recording this on my phone. Lane in a hotel room. Yeah. Lane. But I got I got Brian Gottlieb. Yep. In bed next to him, just relaxing, saying some words into the microphone again, living my best life. Do you do you miss podcasting? Be honest. Sometimes. Sometimes I do. It, I mean it's like Podcasting is a very uh, self-indulgent activity, right? Like you just have to convince yourself that people want to hear what you have to say for an hour and a half every week. And, uh, you know, sometimes I miss forcing people to hear my opinions on things, (laughs) like knowing I have a captive audience of 10,000 plus people. It's a very powerful feeling. Uh, And sometimes I would still like to get some takes out there, but the reality is too busy for that shit, man. And I appreciate the open room in my schedule for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate it too. Cause we finally get to hang out. Uh, I don't even know when the last time I saw you was, but I think the last couple of times were like me just going to fab events. Yeah. Pro tour Baltimore, uh, flesh and blood pro tour Baltimore was the last chance. I think we had to share some space together. Certainly no time for you to podcast there, but you were on the mic. Doing some commentary. Yeah, I still pop in the booth every now and then. It's different from podcasting, though. Like I can just say, "Oh yeah, whatever the fuck I want right now." And at least in that context, I have to stay somewhat focused on what's going on around me. Yeah. So your your life, I imagine, is at least a little bit different. Like it, it's been kind of like a slow transition for you now. Um, but I think you're you're just at the point where you your day to day is like pretty pretty normal pretty static at least in terms of whether or not you're in new zealand or the u.s or whatever but like you're you're in the thick of things now right so like how is that and and what does your life look like what's your day-to-day uh it's it's honestly great i'm i'm very happy like I, i i miss what we did a lot it sucks i mean mostly just for like getting to hang out every week that's that's the huge draw of it but in terms of like I remember talking a lot during the pandemic and just being like, oh, I stumbled into this dream job out of nowhere. And then the pandemic like stole it. And at that point, that dream job was, you know, magic content creation and broadcasting and all that stuff. Um, But in terms of like actual fulfillment from work, what I do now just kind of dwarfs what I was doing back then. And that's not to say like there weren't great things we were doing. It's just we were always at the mercy of a higher power, <laughs> like for that, sure. that higher power, maybe being pandemics, that higher power being star city games, wizards of the coast, whatever entity, uh, we were working for. And sure. I still work, you know, I work for legend story studios now, but, uh, in a role where I get to really feel like I have a huge influence over the health and trajectory of a game. And it, it is, a different feeling. I'm just really excited about what we make every day. And uh, I, I love creating cards and improving cards and thinking about our game and you know every single aspect of it, just from how it's presented to what we want to do in the future and uh, a million different things that cross my plate every day. But in, in terms of day to day, it's very different depending on, on whether I'm in the States or I am in New Zealand. New Zealand, I go to the office every day. Uh, work with my dev team down there and, you know, go about the process of making new cards. And 
testing existing cards and all, all the things you would expect that come along with creating a TCG. And when I am in New York, it's a little bit more uh, design, writing, long-term planning type stuff that I'm doing and less like being in the mix day to day, but still, you know, in contact with my team and getting feedback on what's going on and, you know, working with my fellow lead developer down there and my senior devs to get feedback on everything that's happening. And it's, yeah, it's two different modes of working. And the, the, the best mode is when I'm in New Zealand in terms of productivity and like enjoyment. Um, but there's value in what I get done in New York as well. And I am shifting my schedule to spend more and more time in New Zealand, assuming all of my visa stuff goes well, which, uh, it's kind of not right now, but hopefully that all gets sorted out eventually. I mean, how how difficult is that kind of process, and what like how how much time do you want to be spending in in each place in your ideal scenario? Yeah, well, this year I'm going to target about seven months in New Zealand and five months in the states, and I don't know if that's a hundred percent ideal. I think I would probably lean towards like. 9.3 slanted towards New Zealand in terms of 100% ideal, but there's other uh, considerations I have to make. You know, the fact that I own a house in New York, I have family here, my wife is obviously here, uh, and she'll be spending most of her time with me in New Zealand, but uh, she also has a job that like she has to work from time to time. And it is flexible, but she has to spend some time in the States. So that's kind of uh, dictating a lot of how exactly we get to assign our time. And yeah, I mean, maybe there is even a world where like 12 months in the year in terms of work output, that just becomes the optimal way for work output. But I do have to balance other things going on on top of it. Um, so, you know, it's a unique circumstance. But I, I think the 7-4 seven, the seven four split, or the, excuse me, the 7-5 split I'm working towards this year will be a nice blend for the time being. Cool. In In terms of like community stuff, it's interesting because – we when we're doing magic stuff we're a big part of a community but when you take the reins behind design and developments and the shape of the game and organized play and stuff like that uh you're you're very much like sitting on on top of it you know and i don't know i think i think there are pros and cons to both but certainly if what you want to do is have the ability to affect change in in the place that you're in. Certainly, it, it makes more sense to work towards like getting in the position that you're in now. Yeah, I mean, just think about how many elements of frustration we had with our work where, you know, we had ways that we thought things should be managed or uh, things uh, we just didn't like. Uh, and having no influence over that whatsoever, but still being like, well, no matter what happens, I have to be 100% in on this game because this is my career. And that, that became like almost stifling at some points for me because I, I didn't believe in the things that were being done. And to some extent, I still don't believe in the things that are being done in magic. Like I understand from a business perspective, they're very nice things and very wise things. But uh, in terms of like the thing I loved, I still believe a lot of damage has been done and is, being done to it presently and to just be like but despite that fact this is still 100% my life and I'm 100% all in it just left me feeling disingenuous a lot of the time I think 
Uh, and you know, the, al- the alternative or maybe like what some people would have wanted as the way to engage with that is just like kind of push that aside and ignore that. But that's what would have felt disingenuous. Like if I didn't say the things I was thinking, then I think I was just lost and I would have been frustrated. And, you know, when it comes to a point where you can't say anything but the downsides, you, you probably have to get out, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. And I mean, we, we have been critical and I think certainly towards the end run of of our cast, there, there was a lot of that. But like there, there was a lot for us to be down about and not a ton to be positive about. And that's just like how things were. Yeah. And at that point, it's tough to just like push it aside and be like, well, let's just talk about the cards, you know, because if if I'm down on the whole thing, it's just like, well, I don't even really want to talk about the cards. I'm just like the cards make me sad, man. Yeah, yeah there's uh, a lot of that. So it is it is rough. And I mean, I'm I am certainly feeling that where I've been doing this for basically 20 years, a uh, little bit of off and on, but mostly on and like I I would like to continue doing this I like being part of a community I I like having I don't know just like a a group of folks that want to tune in every week and listen to what I have to say because maybe they don't have the time to put in the work or whatever or maybe I might have a a piece of insight that they did not pick up on in their own testing and stuff like that and I, I like being in that position I like making content I like talking about stuff, helping people succeed. And even if it were not in magic specifically, I would, I would want to find that sort of thing somewhere else. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I've been in magic for so long and I do like a lot of the people and the community and just like a lot of things about it. It's just, it's, it's hard to just give that up. It is. It is really hard. And like, to be fair, like, testing um i'll put testing in big air quotes yeah the testing we did for this tournament which consisted of five games being played last night in the hotel room after uh we built the deck. no that's on my end listen that was that was me making sure you knew how to draw, draw seven, seven in yeah, your opening hand it was close there was also a turn where you thought sees me uh turn one and i just had a fluster storm in play and i i went first and you thought sees me and i just forgot to fluster storm you so i'm, I'm glad i worked that out yeah brian brian just days. laid down his hand i was like yo is is he just next level nah. and brian's just like oh yeah i just forgot yeah i had i had to really reset my my theory but anyway like we we did a bit of that and uh talked to, like uh, 10 minutes 15 minutes about sideboarding but like it was fun to do like i i appreciated that it was good to turn on that portion of my brain that can be like okay here's you know my strategic goals in this matchup let's have this conversation and that conversation is still intriguing to me. so i it's not like the draw is completely absent and there isn't this beautiful core still there there was just a lot of bullshit heap on the core and when i was able to just for this event engage in this haphazard fashion where i just roll down here and put together a deck at the last second and then kind of rules yeah it's it's it feels very nice like it is a completely different experience and not being plugged in and not forced to engage on a week-to-week basis it's you can just appreciate it for what it is as opposed to worrying about the broader picture. Cause that, again, like that's the simple approach, appreciate it for what it is, say it has all these faults and that's great. And I can do that now. I can't do that when I've tied my entire existence to the continued success of this game. Like I, I can't just sit back and do that. Um, but with circumstances very different and my terms of engagement can change. So you and I are both people who I don't think have ever really had a problem speaking our minds. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. We, we kind of talked about this a few times over the weekend uh, with various different examples. But, you know, basically at this point, everyone has a platform or the ability to get a platform if, if they so choose. And everyone has opinions, certainly. And I feel like once we become like a font of negativity, we sort of appear like those folks because it's just like, oh, they're just like complaining again or whatever. And Farming it's like, that engagement from the negative content. Yeah. And it's like, no, I mean, this, this, all our stuff has been in good faith. And I feel like if you look at our track record and certainly look at the things that we're saying too, I feel like you could find consistency in that or whatever. But I, I do feel some amount of like being grouped in with everyone else who's just like a random asshole with a platform. Yeah. Just like spouting stuff off. And like well, it's, I, it's hard to tell the difference in, in fairness. Like it, it is very hard to know like who actually has put in the work, who is willing to engage in good faith. And I get exposed to that all the time. Telling a good faith actor from somebody who just like is trolling or just like wants to do the negative engagement farming. It's, it's really hard unless you know that person's history background. Like I've certainly snapped off on people before and then I speak to them more and I'm like, Oh, you know what? Like you're a good person. And like you, you were coming at this from a very genuine place and we just see something different and that's, or we don't even see it different. We just, I interpreted something that somebody says as like aggressive where it really wasn't meant to be. And those kind of miscommunications happen all the time on the internet. And I, I understand how people like it's it's hard to tell the genuine article apart from just nonsense. Yeah, certainly at a glance, it's it's like borderline impossible. It's just like, you know, we, we have our feeds and occasionally a thing that we tweet or whatever gets like outside of that feed somehow and it reaches someone who doesn't necessarily know the track record or whatever, and then that just kinda like spirals, but you know, whatever. Like I I, I mostly just want to I don't know, kind of, kind of clarify and I suppose defend myself a little bit where it's like, I, I hope that folks can take a step back, look at big picture, uh, my history, your history as well. Yeah. People, and, and people did. Like, it wasn't like it was a, a universal, oh, you're being too negative. It's just like some people, the, the tone got to be too much. I get it. Yeah. So I don't know. It is, it has been interesting, uh, where, you know, like I, I brought Dave on board. I don't know how much you know Dave or interacted with him? like Yeah, like Dave and I, we were never super close, but we certainly have a lot of mutuals and we cross paths in the Northeast many, many times. We always, uh, you know, I, I think enjoyed each other's company when we were in the same spaces and like got along well enough. We weren't uh, ever like working together or anything like that, but just somebody I knew as a good, solid dude who I thought was a excellent, excellent choice to just come on and, and take the reins. And he's, he's proven that very quickly, by the way. Yeah, I don't miss... In case you're wondering, <laughs> Good um, but yeah, D Dave, I I like Dave. I have a lot of the same feelings you do. Where it was just like he was a person who was always very pleasant to be around, very smart, very articulate, a person who I just want to spend more time with. And uh, the thing that I guess I did not necessarily pick up on back then was just like the font of positivity that he is, mm. and. So now it is kind of strange where I'm having the opposite sort of experience where like he recognizes that like X, Y, Z is bad. And he's just like, well, it doesn't matter because like this is the part that is super, super fun to me. And I'm going to continue engaging 
with it this way and just not think about the other stuff. But I can't like not think about don't, the bad stuff. Don't break him, Gerald. Don't uh, I'm, protect I'm, him at all costs. Dude, I'm very carefully trying to I think to there was a moment where that. I was like that too, honestly. I, I really do. And and maybe it was a brief moment, but like there were parts in my magic engagement where like I, I remember actually having this exact conversation when like people hated formats or, you know, were like this format sucks unless it gets banned and didn't get it. And I was just like, well, look, these are the terms of engagement. We take it for what it is. It's always something to work on, always something to improve with. Let's just play the format and then it'll sort itself out eventually. Yeah, and, and usually it was like, oh, you know, this format has a problem. And it's it's kind of like a minor problem for the most part. And there were very often times where you could just be like, well, it's it's not that big of a deal. But even if you're just like, all right, you know, screw modern or whatever, there's still like Do standard, else. pioneer, yeah. legacy, that was like limited, whatever, yeah. right? So yeah, there's there are always so many different things that you could point to is like, you know, try and focus on like the positive things or like, do you, do you like any aspects of these other things, whatever. Um, but you know, things got to a point where it's just like, it was all kind of on fire yeah. and not great. And then it's just like, well, shit, man, I don't know. <laughs> like even, don't even know where to go. Yeah. Even to myself, like how am I supposed to engage in this, uh, when all of it is not great. But yeah. and, and for me to like kind of bring it full circle, I had to go find another game. Like I just had to go do something else and I had to get that perspective of something new. And, you know, now I'm not saying I'm going to come back and play magic now. That's, I just don't really want to, and I don't have the time, but it, it does now give me the ability to engage in like a happy, good faith way with a tournament that I just would not have been able to participate in if I went back just a couple of years ago when I was like plugged in 100%. Yeah, and that aspect of it is interesting too because thinking about Dave and how he has like a very healthy, positive relationship with magic, like also has a lot of other stuff going on in his life, you know, mm -hmm. like married, kid, kid on the way, uh, full-time, like pretty demanding job and everything. So like he has these other distractions and like other things to do with his time, whereas someone like me, like I, I have other stuff that I dabble in or whatever, but magic is certainly a big part of my life. And, and sometimes you just, you get in like a little too deep and yeah. it is certainly very healthy to at some point diversify a little bit and maybe don't go as deep on magic Twitter or something as you would, because, you know, just, just go watch some anime or like some funny videos or whatever, and like be a little bit more well-rounded. And I think that, uh, those, those things overall help. Like I, there was a period almost about a year, honestly, where like, I basically was not on Twitter at all. And that was kind of good. But also, I felt like I was missing out a lot. Yeah. And now I feel like I'm just on it a, a healthy amount. Like there's some drama that I see, there's some drama that I miss. And there's certainly like a weird feeling where it's like, I don't know what's going on in my own community kind of thing. But like that's a, that's okay. That's actively kind of a good thing. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, and uh, you know, for me, I also had to step away from the magic Twitter space just because one, it didn't really apply all that much to what I was doing on a day to day basis anymore. So I, I just didn't really care. Like I, I wanted to see less of it, but uh, it is a profoundly odd space, Gerald. Like it's it's really weird and. Uh, there's a lot of like decisions that have made it really weird. Things like 
uh, ambassadorship programs and the amplification of voices seemingly based only on volume, which is a really interesting place for uh, the discourse to have gone. And yeah, it's, it's odd. Like, I, I don't know why the algorithm feeds me MTG Bubba's tweets on a regular <laughs> basis. And I'm, I hope there's not a real MTG Bubba who feels called out. I'm not calling out a real person, I promise. <laughs> but I'm just talking Bubba, about, Bubba with five followers is like, why yeah, me? I'm so sorry, <laughs> Bubba. Uh, no, but just like random account where I'm like, well, I don't know this person. I don't know their relationship to the game. I don't know how long they've been playing. I don't know... Uh, their level of expertise, you know, are they well-versed in all TCGs? Are they uh, a lifetime gamer? Or are they, you know, uh, somebody new to the hobby? Which is also fine, by the way. But I do think there is something that goes kind of wrong when, like, person who has been playing TCGs for two months is just, like, shitting on the latest band decisions and, like, getting amplified to 10,000 people. And I'm just like, well, what are we what are we doing here? Why is this the take that we're spreading like wildfire? It's, it's just very, very odd. It is weird. I mean, social media algorithms, yeah. et cetera, like all of it just kind of creeps me out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It feels creepy is, is the best way to describe it. And I don't know what else to do with it besides that is just like, feel creeped out, uh, be cautious. Um, what I've been doing is just collecting a broad swath of words to block. And if a tweet contains them, that tweet no longer shows up in my purview. And it is uh, working out much better for me. I Until someone misspells a word. Yeah, then it, then it crumbles. But I, I do just like my main goals for being on Twitter at this point is just stay in touch with my community, the flesh and blood community, understand what's going on there, uh, stay very up on public perception and what people are speaking about. And... If I could like turn on the flesh and blood only mode of Twitter, I would flick that switch. It's not that easy though. And, you know, TCG spaces have a lot of overlap. I get like Pokemon stuff into my feed, Yu-Gi-Oh stuff. It just all leaks in. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of hard actually to not have some idea of what's going on in the other spaces. Yeah. Also, I would like, I'm not going to go through and unfollow all my friends I've made throughout the years in the magic space, which I'm sure influences the other things I get shown. So it's, of course it's just weird. Yeah. So anyway, we are in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the lovely Hilton garden Inn or whatever. Uh, it is eternal weekends. It is Saturday, right? Yes. You told me it was Saturday. Yes, I thought it was you Friday. Were very surprised by that. fact. I was, I was pretty surprised because I, I opened a sealed last night for the arena LCQ Knowing full well that the actual qualifier was Saturday, I just didn't know what day it was. I was like, mm. oh, I might have time to play that tomorrow. But I, I opened a steel deck and then just went to bed. Whereas, uh, you know, if I knew the tournament was just going to end or whatever, I probably I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, probably true. But anyway, I, we, did, we did just also arbitrarily end the tournament. Like neither of us were actually eliminated from said tournament. We just eliminated ourselves. Yeah, but... I don't think that that is too surprising, no. uh, at least in terms of me. If anyone knows my history, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, 3-1 drop. That's pretty normal. Yep. Standard record. Look, man, I, I I mean, getting this podcast out and also just like spending the maximum amount of time with you was more of my concern this weekend than anything else. Right. So. And we were just like, you know, we got to see each other after our rounds, but 
you're kind of like idling around. There's nowhere comfortable to sit. Very busy venue for the most part. Yeah, uh, there there are a lot of humans in there. I mean, the legacy thing hit the cap. They extended the cap by about another hundred to two hundred players, something mm-hmm. like that. I don't know what the final number was, but the room that we're in was also not super large, and there's a lot of it vendors. Was, it was tight. It was tight for sure. Yeah, a lot of other stuff going on. Not a whole lot of open table space. But yeah, it's like artist vendors. The the whole thing going on. I will say they they did a good job for like utilizing their space and Absolutely. keeping things moving very smoothly. I thought it was a very well-run uh, convention space. It was just like absolutely pushing the limits of how many people they could fit into that convention space. Um, but I don't think running to follow those limits, I think just right up against them and doing a really good job managing that space while pushing those limits. Agreed. But still just like, you know, that's not really the experience I want to have. I prefer more space, more comfort. Yeah, I would much rather be comfortable than just crammed in like sardines, you know. But I understand why they did it. Like, the demand was massive. And that's a, another huge takeaway from this weekend. It's just like, man, people really want to play Legacy. Well, Once a year. Yeah. Once so a year. I was having this conversation with someone. I kind of kind of forgot who. Um, but people point to this as like, you know, Legacy's not dead. Like, people... People still want to play Legacy. They'll come out to your events. And, like, historically, that's just not true. But, like, when you make it a yearly thing that people can plan and prepare for, and that's their only shot to do anything uh, in in relation to the format, then, yeah, absolutely, they're going to try and come out. But, like, if you started holding this type of thing monthly or whatever... Yeah, it would fold very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that... Either yearly or biannually, that's every or twice a year, or is that every two years? I think it can actually mean both. I'm pretty sure that that's one of those things where it's like people probably misused it enough to the point where they're like, okay, we'll yeah, add the, we'll, we'll we'll add the so twice a year. You know, like I think like every six months honestly would be doable and still good enough and cool enough. But like I don't know this this lends itself. Uh, when you're doing it yearly and there isn't a whole lot else going on, there are people like, like Mark Tobias who went to all three of them. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that that is badass. And I think Mark is also an, an exception where, like, th- there were legacy GPs that he would come over in, yep. in the States and stuff, you know. Yep. So there, there are certainly folks like that that are able to take the time off and, like, prioritize this thing that they like doing, which is, I guess, casting doomsday. Yeah. Making, making piles of five. Um, but not everyone can do that. Right. So like once every six or 12 months, then yeah, people, people are going to show up and it's going to be rad, but I don't think that we can go back to a a time where we have like monthly big legacy tournaments, at least not yet. It was really interesting too. Like Obviously, you and I very much came up in that sort of formative legacy scene, uh, you know, there for the explosion back in the day when Dual Lands went from whatever they were, 50 bucks to, you know, 10x that. And just there was good bi-weekly legacy tournaments all over the SCG Tour and everyone cared about legacy and you could write about legacy and just kind of its absolute heyday. Um, and so... You think if that sort of hangs on and the nostalgia is still present and still brings people out, you think you and I walk into this room and just be like, ah, oh, there's all these old friends we haven't seen 
in you know 10 years, 15 years, I didn't feel like I knew anyone in that room. I saw uh, Dom Harvey, got to say hi to him. I saw Cedric Phillips real quick. And I think those are the only two people I knew throughout the entire weekend and did not know anyone else. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of random people that we bumped into, but it's, I mean, it's like definitely maybe 10, certainly sub 20, right? And so there's just a thousand fresh faced legacy players out there desperate for their shot to come together once a year. And I think it's just like everywhere around the country had like these small pockets of like the 15, 20 legacy players. And in a lot of cases, that didn't amount to like participation on these circuits, but there were always those healthy regional scenes. And I think what Eternal Weekend has become is a combination of all those regional scenes. And now, as I say that, I think back to like, yeah, there were some dudes from upstate New York who I played legacy with on a weekly basis back in the day. And I did run into them as well. So like there's my small scene that came down in some small part for this event. Yeah. Um, I mean, like what, what is, what is my scene exactly? Well, like you've, it, been, you've been too many places. No, I, yeah, I know. So it's like, is it, is it Roanoke? Cause like I saw, I saw Suarez, he was playing vintage, you know, uh, is it, is it Seattle? I saw one of the Seattle dudes, but definitely not a lot of them. Uh, Minnesota, I think there's like none of them, but I think those are like my three main communities that you could potentially point to. But like, it's also entirely possible that there are folks from all of those communities. I just don't know them yeah. because I haven't lived in any of those areas for like three, four years at this point. So yeah, it is, it is kind of weird walking around and not really knowing anyone when uh, like so also still feeling like this is, Oh, this is my community. Right. Right. Where it's like, Oh, I just don't know anyone in my community. How did this happen? Right. But it was like, yeah, we didn't really play for three years. Yep. And when, and I think there's a lot of new faces, a lot of turnover. Yep. Uh, and it's just like a very, very different scene. Very different. And when I started going to tournaments, like, I don't know, four or six months ago, something like that. I had the same feeling. It wasn't just at Eternal Weekend yep. for me. It was just like going to all of these events and slowly but surely through just, I don't know, getting paired against people fortuitously and uh, meeting friends of friends and stuff like that. And I, I, I met some cool people. They introduced me to some other cool people. So like now it's it's back to feeling like I, I do have friends at these events, which is great. Yeah, it's... it's uh... A different world. And look, even in the best of times, I am generally socially awkward and not the best at forming uh, these kind of like casual relationships, whereas you are very good at it. You've always had this kind of big swath of people surrounding you. So I wasn't super shocked by the I don't really know anyone here type vibes like that is not entirely uncommon for me. Uh, but like there's people who I quasi know who like maybe I don't stop and chat with them, but like, oh, I've played this person a bunch of times and I've seen them around forever. Um, and then just like hanging out with you at these things, there's always like just 200 different people coming up and saying <laughs> hi to you. And again, yeah. I partially know some of them and they're just like not really here anymore. Listen, man, before the tournament started, we got a, you know, love the podcast. We did. From yeah. someone. So yeah, that, whoever that, that was, thank you. Um, I appreciate the now retroactive vote of confidence. Yeah, they're just like, oh, rest in peace, Brian. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's it's getting back to the point where um, I'm like pretty comfortable at these events, which is good because I certainly need that because I can't imagine going to these things and actually just like not knowing anyone. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah. Yeah, it's it's also weird too because like I have to now contrast this with my other tournament scene where I go to a flesh and blood tournament, you know, in, in Barcelona. I just got back from my world championships in Barcelona. And not only do I know everyone in the building, or at least everyone in the building like knows me, but I'm just like walking down the streets and people are stopping me. Like it's a very, very <laughs> different experience um, in terms of like being that uh, focal point, just the, and, and honestly, I don't, I'm not saying I prefer that experience. Like I, I am grateful for that experience and I am happy to speak to everyone who wants to speak to me at one of these events, but it is for someone like me who isn't naturally outgoing. It is overwhelming. Like I end the day at these tournaments and I, fucking collapse into my bed just no spoons left completely exhausted um while yeah. still being like very grateful for it i i think there there is a happier middle ground which is probably more in line with what we were doing before where it's like we maybe. are we are a big part of a community but yeah, but not the focal point yeah and yeah. yeah maybe we haven't met everyone you know like we uh say we go to like a magic con type of thing where there's a lot of different sects of people hanging out you know there's like the commander crowd who maybe we know some of the people or whatever but it's like you don't have every single person there who sees you is just like oh that's the guy should i go say something to the guy you know or just being here and your opponent's like i've never seen you before you must be new or whatever you know yeah i, I got a few of those um and it was it, it's nice it's it's refreshing um but yeah, especially when you're like reading cards too, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure some of the people who lost to me were not pleased like to lose to a complete noob who has been playing the game for 30 years and just doesn't know what a fourth Aerolingus does. Buy listen for 20. I was fourth Aerolingus several times. I had the initiative once. Did you did you do anything with it? I got a land. Tight. Yeah, I, I didn't need it. I mean, I had an Emrakul in play, so yeah. I you mean, tend to not need the land at that point. <laughs> with, yeah, with your deck, when you take the initiative, you yeah, really take the initiative. You're probably in a pretty good spot. Um, yeah, I, I, I read a lot of cards. A lot of a lot of initiative cards were read. Uh, suspend cards that just steal my deck, which is seems unfair, but you know, this is bribery. Who am I to judge? Bribery's fine. Bribery on turn one, bro, at instant speed. I will say you're playing a fringe deck. You're playing Sneak and Show. Yeah. You're playing what is ultimately a fringe deck at this point. And it's funny to me that your opponent had it likely for things like Reanimator, Reanimator yeah, yeah. right? It's, like it's an, seen, an actual The card deck. seemed very good in his archetype. Like I, I don't know what his plans are in those matchups. Because we played game one and it was very easy for me to just like set up exactly what I needed. Uh, in game two, when he had a one-card win condition, it became much, much harder to defeat his violent outbursts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, did you know that I did that in modern? Is that a modern card? That's a spend card? Yeah, it's a MH2 card. Oh, I, di I didn't even know it was an MH2 card. Yeah, honestly. you're just like, this This thing is fake as hell. I thought it was a commander card. I had no idea it was MH2. Oh, uh, no, it's MH2. Um, there was, you, you remember Omnath, four-color Omnath? Yeah. So th that's a deck in modern. And then they made this Beanstalk card yep. uh, with all of these pitch five mana elemental guards yeah i played against the beans this weekend okay and uh i just got to a point where i was like oh maybe we should just be like cascading into beans so you like cast beans on two cascade into it on turn three but then double beans yeah and then yeah you just kind of pop off and the 
the end versions that I had of, of that archetype were maybe you play a couple time warps and you just win with Jace wielder of mysteries. Cause you draw your deck with yep. all the pitch elementals. And yeah. That stuff. seems really bad. Really bad. Uh, to exist. Yeah. Not, to exist. Not, yeah. Not in terms of <laughs> yeah. It was, it was not bad. Um, uh, it, gameplay was absolutely miserable for yeah. sure, but you still have bad matchups like Tron and stuff. And so like I was dabbling with like, oh, I'll just like cut some beanstalks and, uh, bring into these briberies or whatever and steal yeah. my opponent's Ulamog. Problem is, is with stuff like Tron, it's like, he's just bored out there two Ulamogs. Yeah. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but you never know. Yeah. That makes sense. So I tried it before, but it was, it was inconsistent, but like you, you're sneaking showing. Like, what else are you going to do? Yeah, I didn't have a lot of other options. Could have went on the Simeon's Spirit Guide beatdown plan. I don't think that was going to get there. So. Yeah, I mean, in theory, you could have, like, cut your Emrakuls, but I'm pretty sure if they attract you, it's still pretty bad. It's really bad. I, you know, in, so I lose game three to a... Uh, Inevitable betrayal. Yeah, the the card. that sounds right. Uh, so end of my turn two, he violent outbursts into uh, steal my shit. And I was like... I actually had like omniscience Atraxa show and tell in my hand for the next cycle. And I'm like, man, if I just don't give him an Emrakul here, I actually feel like I have a chance in this. So I, you know, if I were going back to test that matchup again, which I will never do. No, we're if, done. If, yeah. I were, if I were going to, I would, I would at least want to look at like, what does the game look like? If I just let him have Atraxa, like, can I still play? I think what happens is he just goes and gets another force will and then forces my show and tell and it doesn't really matter anyway, but most likely, like, I, I guess I get another out, but in that case, the out isn't worth the fact that I can just like potentially, uh, sneak in an Emrakul, maybe at an accelerated pace somewhere along the way. So yeah, the, either way, magic, magic's kind of fun. Like there are puzzles. You, you do have things to think about. So despite the pieces of the legacy format being wrapped in like several additional layers of bullshit such as like initiative uh more monarch than previously was there the stickers stickers yeah that's another one the core of how the games are played it's actually remarkably similar and maybe that is just coming from like somebody who's like I don't know that there's more than a handful of legacy tournaments I ever played. I can think of a couple with Dredge. But for the most part, I'm brainstorming. I am pondering. I'm usually wastelanding, though not always. In this instance, obviously, I was not. But the main thing is, like, brainstorm, ponder, force of will, figure out my windows, figure out how to kill you. Like, what am I supposed to play around? What is my cantrip ordering? All of that stuff is still there. And it was actually really, like, it, it gave me a little bit of hope to see those elements still so omnipresent, despite the heaped on layers of bullshit on top of it. And like, yeah, there is this like Boros initiative deck, but like, that's not really doing anything. That's all that much different from what any red city of traders deck, or even like, uh, maybe it's a little different, from like blue sea stompy, but like ultimately every fast mana red deck has sort of done the same things. Just the pieces have gotten more efficient and it still feels like playing the exact same games for the most part. Yeah, it is just fancy moon stompy. Yeah. That, that, that's all it is. And it doesn't ultimately change that much with, like, how you interact with it. And and even so, like, you, you take a step back, look at, like, the big picture, and it's like you, you have uh, decks that are utilizing, like, fast mana, doing combo-y things. You have, like, reanimator. You have some storm variants. Yeah. You still have, like, these tempo decks. You have blue control decks. It's, it still felt remarkably like Legacy. I didn't, I don't know that I expected that coming in, but it, it really did. 
Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I guess I could have told you that, but that's not a thing that I like thought to ask because like, yeah, a, a lot of the cars are different, but the, the macro archetypes are mostly the same. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is kind of cool, especially for an eternal format yeah. to be like that. Right. Yeah. It's like someone could take like five, 10 years off, maybe come back and be like, yeah, this is a little bit different, but like I get the vibe. Dude, I I felt like I took five, ten years off. Like the the amount of change in the number of cards I had to read was pretty staggering. Um, but I, I think that's why I did not expect to have the oh, actually the core experience is the same epiphany by the end of the day. Because throughout the day, I'm just like, well, I guess I'll read this card, and then like I'll start reading the card and be like, no, nah, I'm just gonna give up on this one. What's the stupid one I told you about in Reanimator? Uh, currency converter, yeah, which which I snapped off. off, which I snapped off immediately. As as he didn't even like describe any of the text, but he's like, I started reading it and I just gave up. I was like, currency converter. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was just said to my opponent, I'm like, I'll just watch what you do, and if it becomes important at some point, I'll figure it out. And eventually, I did. And you know, it goes back to I, I think the really interesting takeaway about that card and a lot of the like I said, heaped on layers of bullshit is that what I find most frustrating about those cards is there's like a interesting concept there, but there's just zero restraint and there's no desire to make a readable or easily grokkable card, even entering the picture. It's just like, just throw whatever words on there you want. And if it's hard to read, who cares? They'll figure it out eventually. And like, that's a bold approach and the antithesis of how I design cards. Um, yeah. So, so my guess for that one specifically was that like, I have an idea of what I want this card to kind of do. And then it's like, okay, how do we actually word it? And then they put the words on the cards that are functional, yep. but it doesn't read clean. And then like, once you start playing with it, you get like some experience against it or with it, then you, it's fine. Man. Yeah. It you fine understand what's going player. on. Right. But like in, in terms of how does this look to a person reading it for the first time, it seems like there's, not a whole lot of like care or consideration given to them. Yeah, I, I don't think they care. And I, I think that's a, you know, if, if I'm wrong, then I'm I'm wrong. And then they're like not doing a good job of it. But I, I don't think that is the case. I just think they just say, well, they'll figure it out eventually. And there's something to that theory. Like there, there really is just like, you know, if you're so invested as to play with these cards, you're probably going to do the work to eventually understand what this card does. And, you know, I now observe a lot of commander games. I've still never played one, but I, I do like, because our local flesh and blood night corresponds with commander night. I see a bunch of people playing commander more than I ever oh. did in like a quiet space. And I hear the way they kind of talk through and describe their cards and they just read each line aloud and like tell you exactly what it does and then explain it a bunch of times. Like, I feel like they kind of like it. Like they like how difficult it is to understand <laughs> and they like talking through it. And it's, it's, which is weird, right? Because that would not that would not be our guess. No. And when I design cards for Flesh and Blood, like I will tell you all the time, we often have conversations where we're like, oh, we'd like this effect. And then we start putting that effect together and look at how we have to word it to make it exist. And then we go, that's oh, just not worth it. It's not worth having this level of complexity of these words. And so we come up with a different idea and we challenge ourselves to find a different way to fill that slot or accomplish that goal. And uh, I, I don't think that's what, magic design does anymore i think they just make the card well at least in specific cases yeah you know? maybe it's isolated to like commander decks maybe they found that specifically with the commander players is that they kind of enjoy that read aloud experience i, I don't know but all all the like the dumbest cards all come from those sets though like i don't 
there's hard standard cards to read, but they're never quite as dumb as the things from like the Warhammer box sets or the Doctor Who sets or, or whatever. They're always like weird commander products that are carrying those just jankiest decks with them. I will say there are definitely some exceptions for for some of the standard sets. Are there? Yeah, maybe I, I mean, them lately. No, well, I was I was giving you some examples with like the craft stuff last night, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't even guess what those cards did. So uh fair enough. It, but the craft maybe it's just gotten worse since I checked out. Anyways. Craft craft honestly is is the exact thing as is currency converter where it's like it it reads weird, and especially when you're going over like a spoiler for the first time. It's just like, oh god, this is super hard to understand. But like, once you play with like each of the cards, it's probably fine. once, yeah, like you get it. But it's just like that initial barrier to entry is so rough. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe, maybe we've all, maybe I have been thinking about this the wrong way. I, I like, I really actually want to have conversations about it and think about it and ask, like, is this a worthy barrier we're putting up in front of ourselves to have this? clean easily readable text I, I i still believe it is right now i think if it if it's just this weird thing like you know what it actually reminds me of so jared betcher one of the just worst humans i've ever encountered in my life was a local to me for a very long time and notorious cheater by the way in case you think cheater. brian is just yeah, like yeah. slandering or no, no, dude, but he deserves the the meanness uh Notorious Cheater stole lots of money from tons of Magic players by cheating. And uh, just, we don't know he's a cheater at the time. And he goes on this hellacious tear. He's just beating everyone. Becomes a platinum pro out of nowhere, rookie of the year. And all of us just don't think he's a very good player. But he's absolutely dominant. Like beating everyone, winning everything. And there were points during his run where I'm like, do I just have no idea what I'm talking about? Like he made me feel dumber than anyone has ever made me feel in my entire life because I was so sure everything he was doing was wrong, but he would win so damn much and I just couldn't piece it together. And so right now, something like that design philosophy where I'm like, wait, am I just not supposed to be worrying about making readable cards? That's insane. That's an insane thing to say as a game designer. But Wizards is making a lot of money and they're growing like hand over foot and at some point you just start questioning yourself and going, well, am I the idiot here? Well, another thing that seems absurd is the fact that so many people are entering magic through command. Yeah. It seems impossible to me. I, I don't understand how that's the onboarding product. And so my, my thought is at the very least, I think if you can make things grockable at a very low opportunity cost, you should absolutely should do, do that. It. Right. Yeah. And then, there will be specific use case scenarios where like, you know, I remember kind of like back in the day where it's like, oh, this card has a lot of text. Therefore, it must be mythic. Like yeah. that that was just a, a rule. It was kind of like a given, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's just like, uh, yeah, like commons just kind of look like that sometimes now. Um, but I think things looked better. They seemed cleaner. It seemed easier to understand. But then again, if people are just coming in through commander and I mean, you and I have talked about this before where it's like you hand someone like a, an, a starter deck or like a, an intro deck, right? A thing that is meant to be a tool to teach someone how to play magic. Yeah. Right. And the, they were horrible for years. It's all like grizzly bears and Terrible. lightning bolts or not lightning bolts, like giant growths. Right. 
And it's, it's nothing that is like fun or exciting or cool, or you don't have like this moment, this aha moment of discovery where you're like, Oh, this works really well with this card or whatever. Whereas commander, you certainly have those moments immediately, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, like what is this deck trying to do? And it's like, well, here's this five card combo or whatever. And you immediately see like their eyes light up. Yep. Right. Because they are immediately being exposed to probably like one of the coolest things that is possible to do in the space. Yeah. And there are thousands of those things available to them. Yeah. You have to display how the rules engine breaks. That's been a, a big uh, principle of mine for a long time when it comes to onboarding new players is that you have to let the rules engine break and show its potential for expressiveness, creativity, show that exceptions uh, happen all the time and things are never really quite as they seem because that's where games become exciting. And, you know, we just put out a product in conjunction uh, with the professor. We did this box set called around the table and it was very much focused on onboarding new players. And we did it through the multiplayer environment and multiplayer in flesh and blood is still very much finding its foothold. It's not our most popular format. It's not like commander in the magic space. Uh, but there was a lot we could do with that space to make exciting, fun, engaging play experiences that are just a little bit harder to do in the one-on-one space without doing like that hard per card complexity. Uh, so th- there's something there about just like combining cards in interesting ways and and letting the game break very quickly and showing that off as the most exciting thing you can do. These these are the types of conversations that we have occasionally or like occasionally I'll have with someone else too. And then the thought immediately, because like my initial reaction to something is like I want to know more mm-hmm. when I'm I'm starting to think about a thing, but I don't know the answer. And like uh, that's certainly a point where it's like I'm not going to chime in with an opinion because I, I don't really have one yet. I haven't formed one, but like I do want to know more so I can learn about this thing. And I'm just like, maybe I should just like go spend like a week watching like a bunch of GDC talks or something. But then I go home and I sit down on my computer. I just forget about it. Yeah. Uh, so, Moments of inspiration. Yeah. But like in this moment, it's, it's super fascinating to me because yeah, the obvious thing is like, Oh, you should probably not have the barrier to entry be so high and so complex. But at the same time, like if you ever sat down to like play a board game for the first time, yeah, and I, I do think the board game uh, ethos and vibes are now shaping a lot of the broader gaming industry. And just like, man, the ask of these board games that they put on players, absurd, bro. Like, just go study this rule book for three and a half hours, and then you're ready to sit down and play this five-hour game for the first time. Yeah. People sign up for that, though. And, like, you have to know where your audience is at. If that's what audiences are looking for, you, you have to be willing to provide them that kind of experience uh, and I think this stupid reanimator card was very much the board game experience. No, for sure. I think I think that is a fairly apt analogy, actually. I'm like, yeah, one, once you start doing it, uh, it's just like, okay, I get it. I understand like what this card does and what's going on. And like once you start going through the order of your turn or whatever in a board game, yeah, like you you get used to it. You fall in pretty quickly. Also, but, when you when you do those things, or when you put together the three pieces of this card, where it has like its exile effect, its looting effect, and its make a two two effect, you feel smart. You didn't actually do anything. Like all you did is just turn the card sideways and do. Yeah, what it's it tells it's you all to. on the card. Yeah, yeah, but once you complete that, you're like, I did something. I moved all these pieces and I made something. 
And that's an experience that comes from actually putting multiple steps on those cards and creating the hoops. And only by working through those hoops do you feel accomplished when you do the thing. Really, really interesting psychology. And it, it sort of throws a lot of, you know, what we've always known in quotation marks about TCGs uh, up for question. But it's, it's always like all of these things are always a degree of measures. Like it's how far do you go down this rabbit hole? How hard do you lean into this type of theory? And even if this theory is true, should it be 100% of your designs that are knocking on this door? And I, the answer is clearly no. Like you are supposed to have some balance. Um, maybe, maybe the bigger problem to me with the state of magic design, it's not any individual thing, like any one thing that is done. It's a broader lack of restraint to say, okay, we did this and let's not do it again for a little while. It's okay. We did this. Seems like people like it. Let's do it 300 more times until you can't fucking take it anymore. Let's yeah, we're smash them in the face with this thing repeatedly. We're just going to jam Innistrad down your throat over and over and over again. It's yeah. like, no, like it was, it was cool for a while, but like, yeah, can, can we just put like a three year buffer on this stuff? But then part of it too is like, well, there's a new product coming out every six weeks. Yeah, so there, or can't, there can't so, be a buffer. Yeah. Uh, the complexity creep kind of stuff also just reminds me of Dual Masters, mm. where the first few sets were relatively like vanilla and tame, but then complexity creep inevitably hits. And like that show also had some weird constraints for uh, like the Japanese market for sure, because yeah. it's like kind of the way it worked was like the new season of the anime would be premiering and there would be a set that would like come out uh, around the same time. And it's like, okay, like this is the big bad during this season. So obviously we want their card to be good. Yeah. So you kind of have to like make their card very powerful. Uh, and it's a weird way to do design and, and dev and stuff versus just like make a bunch of fun pieces and see what shakes up. Right. But like watching tournaments for this, where there's just like these seven year old kids playing against each other in the finals of some tournament in a mall or whatever. And they both play lightning quick cause they're seven and they're just full of boundless energy. Right. And all the cards are just, they have, infinite lines of text they're all currency converters you know like three different lines yeah. that all do all these Yu -Oh, things man like yeah exactly it's, it's the same type of stuff where it's just like they're just playing like lightning fast yep. doing a bunch of stuff it's like is the most complicated game on the planet and it's like for children quote, quote the children's game yeah. it's not like it's that's not true and like if you go to a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament it is like maybe a little younger than magic but it's it's a similar type vibe but like yes it is at least theoretically supposed to be the children's game. And it's just the most complicated thing you could ever imagine and has been for decades now. Right. And uh, Duel Masters, at least in, in Japan, is very much along the same same lines. It's I think it was not quite as popular as like Yu-Gi-Oh! and uh, some of the other stuff, like Pokemon for sure. But it was, it was like a solid number three or like top five or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you're – it's a big ask for like seven-year-olds. To handle all that stuff, but they just in. they just do it because they're, they're like, in. "Hey, I like I like games. This is fun. Like, I will figure it out. I yeah. will go through these hoops because I want to. I want to get to the end state of like actually enjoying this thing." And it doesn't really provide as much of a barrier as you would expect it would. 
Yeah, the other uh, the other lead developer on my team is a former world class Yu Gi Oh player. He's like a top four worlds competitor in in Yu Gi Oh, and so his background he played Magic as well, but his background was as far as like a high level competitive player was much more rooted in Yu Gi Oh than the type of folks I uh, usually have frequent frequented with across the years. And it's really interesting to hear his perspective on things. Like his opinion of Yu Gi Oh is like. The game is absurd. It's accelerated to such a ridiculous point where all the games end on turn one, which they do. Like, you, and you solitaire for thirty minutes as you do your turn one, and that is the game of Yu-Gi-Oh now. And you basically get like two to three points of interaction in the game, and if you fail them, then you'll get comboed out for thirty minutes, and that's how the game is played. And he's like, "This is ridiculous. Why would anyone sign up for this?" And then at, <laughs> he says that the way I say that about Magic, like where I go, "This is ridiculous. Why are so many people playing it?" And at the same time, acknowledges. Yu-Gi-Oh tournament scene is banging right now. Yeah. Like just like 3,000 person tournaments on the reg showing up to play solitaire on turn one and like loving it. Just absolutely loving it. And it Pokemon has those moments too. Yeah. Like they, they certainly figured out like, you know, Bill Professor Oak kind of busted, got to yeah. limit some of these to yeah, like yeah. one they, per turn or whatever. They do a better job limiting. Yeah. But the, there are still decks that do a lot of like wheel of fortuning and like yeah. demonic tutoring and stuff like that. And uh, they're they're also popping off, and I mean, yeah. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Like they consistently come out with new games, and their IP they're so good at managing their IP in uh, general. Yeah. And this is even with like me thinking that they could be doing things better in certain areas. Um, but regardless, like there are a lot of reasons why that game is popping off, and like part of it is just like people are having fun playing the game too. Yeah, yeah, for all of its weirdness, and like. People like solitarian for 30 minutes on turn one Yu-Gi-Oh. They want to do that. Like some number of people want to do that. And everyone kind of finds their niche, man. There's enough card games out there now, enough well-developed card games uh, with like their own tournament scenes where like, you know, there's there's people who have played Magic for years who only ever played Storm, right? Yeah. Like that's their only interest in the game. And like, that's cool. But what if there was a whole game that was just storm and you could go play that? <laughs> and like, I think some of those people go do that. And it's just like, we all get tickled by very different things. So it's a very interesting question of like who you're designing your game for, how broad of a net are you supposed to be casting? Uh, like what segments of the broader gaming art audience are you targeting? And it, it's just something that is like the idea of right answers to me in game design. I believe it much less than I did I guess like before I actually worked in the field. So like that makes sense. You probably learn things pretty quickly when you actually start doing it. Um, but I, I, there were just like a lot of fundamental, a, f- a lot of fundamentals and principles I believe should like always influence your work. Now I just question a lot of them. I think uh, audiences are odd. Like we're all odd. We all want weird things. And like you have to find the way to tickle your audience and you have to find the way to tickle them at the right time. And it's it's going to look very different a lot of the time, and Magic is obviously doing a tremendous job tickling uh, new, very excited portion of their audience and just crushing it. And heuristics in general are just kind of shit too. Yeah, for sure. And like we know that we know you're always supposed to reset your heuristics and never lean on anything. But some of the you know core design heuristics, like I said, it's it's not it doesn't feel like a stretch to be like you should make your cards easy to read and comprehend. Like that just seems. Not even like a heuristic. That seems like common sense. But now I'm saying sometimes I think that's actually wrong. I don't think that should always be your goal. Yeah, so. and I, I, I'm i going to bring it back to like the mythic rare thing where it's like 
if if your card is of a higher rarity and this is not the thing that people are exposed to all the time, I think it is completely reasonable to take like you should take pointed shots at having things that are like complex and give people this, I don't know, like thing to think about, like puzzle to think about yeah. thing to uh, I mean, the, the best thing for like for me when any new set is getting previewed is like give me some things that get my brain working, yep. that give me ideas to like build around and, and stuff like that. And I think the kind of complicated sideways embracing mythic rare type of things, yep. they, they have a lot of space to be able to do stuff like that. Young me was very excited by Ice Cauldron. Now, as time went on, I realized there was actually nothing to be excited about there. But reading that card for the first time, I was like, I don't even know that I know what this does, but there's got to be something. There. <laughs> and, and there wasn't. There was nothing there. But like, there could have been. All, all that was missing was just like another piece. Yeah, one you little know? payoff, and then maybe Ice Cauldron would have been worth it. Who knows? But yeah, it's it's just like, man, should is is there diminishing returns on that sort of stuff? Like, I don't I don't know because you you think like, okay, well, we're gonna put like, you know, ten of these in a set. Maybe the other five to ten mythics or, or whatever are gonna be things that are like good on rate or you know somewhat simplistic but splashy and powerful you know like you get a good mix of things ideally yeah right and it's just like well like should we stop at 10 should it be 20 yeah. like what what if should it's, there be 100 yeah like, what, what if there's 100 what if it's just half the set are these sort of things is that good or bad I, I do think it is good to explore your limits like we recently uh put out a set bright lights where uh we knowingly kind of pushed our complexity boundaries and we're scaling things back down with our next release heavy hitters and a lot of people saw that set and were like oh my god when they've, they've lost the plot the game has gotten so complex and it's like well no no we're, we're just trying something we're just trying it here and like we're aware of it and we want to see what happens and we want to see how people engage with it and uh you know it was an interesting experiment and, and sometimes i think you have to give magic the room to do that as well um you know 30 some years in i feel like they've mostly explored a lot of these things but uh yeah it, it's so, it's always interesting I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, how how did that kind of come about? Was there, like, a specific part of, like, the rules engine or, or or something along those lines that you wanted to specifically push the boundaries on? Or was there, like, a specific thing that you wanted to do that was inherently more complicated and you knew that, but you're like, look, if we just do this this one time, like, this would be a good time for it? Like, how did all this come about? And, like, what what specifically was it that you pushed? We're going to go deeper in the weeds about flesh and blood than we've ever done, but this is not a real episode of the podcast, and if you've made it this far, you're at least broadly interested in what I'm doing, so it'll it'll be fine. Yeah, I, I try and make it generically appealing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So, flesh and blood is a class-specific game. All right, our game revolves around hero gameplay. There's heroes of multiple different classes. Rangers, you know, pretty typical fantasy stuff. Rangers, illusionists, uh, guardians, warriors, brutes, that type of stuff. Flesh and Blood was, well, Bright Lights was going to be a set about one class, mechanologists. And mechanologists are kind of like, uh, like steampunk-ish, cyberpunk-ish, futuristic type stuff. They come from a very technologically advanced part of our world. Uh, they're kind of like mining energy and making all these marvels of creation. If you want like a magic 
equivalent Kaladesh like is, is probably as close as you can get. Um, so we, we know we're going to bright lights. We know we're making an all mechanologist set in order to make a set about only one class. And this is the first time we'd ever done this. They needed to do interesting things for their class that still felt in the vibes of that class. And that meant a pretty broad expansion of what the mechanologist class was capable of. And, you know, just the, in the formative part of like those ideas were like, well, what are mechanologists capable of? And damn, it would be cool if they could build a big ass mech suit and ride around in their own mechs and customize their mechs and, you know, build this mech suit to do different things in different ways. And that is not a mechanic that was previously supported in our game. So we needed a way to allow you to go ahead and build your mech suit that felt flavorful, flavorful and was really cool. Uh, and then there was like the tinkerer type archetype of mechanologists where they were building all these items and we needed a way to make items work a little bit better in our game. So we needed a new keyword that worked with items and it was, you know, a, a little bit on the wordy side, but uh, it was really critical that if these different aspects of mechanologists were going to have their own identity, their own modes of play work really well in a limited environment that we built these things out a little bit. And it was kind of a spot where we were willing to, like I mentioned the conversation before where you make something and you go, yeah, this is what we were looking for. But, you know, the words are just it's a lot of words. It, it takes a lot to get to that point. And we kind of relaxed our standards in that regard to say, OK, yeah, it's going to take a few more words here to get what we want. But we have goals. We have things we're trying to accomplish. We're going to expand things a little bit here. And we know that we're comfortable with it. We're going to uh, take every single reasonable step we can to mitigate it, to tone down words per card when we can, uh, to you know provide our players with good guardrails along the way to make sure they're not getting overwhelmed by these things. But we are going to go ahead and ramp up complexity in this set. Um, and we did. We followed through on that. And I, I think to uh, a level of success, like we, this set turned out to be a very polarizing set. We knew that going into it. That was our goal. But I think actually on the high end, in terms of the people who love the set, they it exceeded actually our wildest expectations in terms of how much they loved it and how, how much we delivered in the limited format and uh, how much they really like embraced the complicated aspects of it. And then some people said it was too complicated. And that was a very, very fair criticism. And when we come to our next set, we'll tone it back. But it, it's just like this conscious engagement with the pendulum i think is the best way i can describe what we did in this scenario and why we did it um and i i am pleased with the end result i think we ended up in a really good place and did something really unique for our game yeah i mean variety is good right like, i think it is good for you know you to have like a limited set that's maybe like a little bit uh grindier a little bit more attrition based and then maybe one that is like okay, maybe this is just like pure beatdown and racing situations and stuff like that. And ideally you get a little bit of a mix of that within each environment, right? But yep. like, I, I feel like the the limited formats thematically should feel different yep. from each other too versus, I don't know, I think over the last couple of years, the, the limited formats have been pretty good and I have enjoyed them. And certainly they've all had uh, their own sort of 
I don't know, like pitfalls, I guess. But it's it is tough to do a format that just ends up being perfect. Yeah. Uh, but they they felt different, and that's big, man. I, I think that's a huge portion of the the battle. I've been playing a lot of like arena opens and stuff, man. Like I certainly at the height of like SCG tour stuff where I'm, I'm playing constructed like every single week, like you could not pay me money to play limited, even if the formats were, were pretty reasonable, but I'm just, I'm having a lot of fun. And a lot of it is because like set to set, there is a decent amount of variety. And even within the formats themselves, I've been having fun trying to do specific things like specifically, uh, wilds, I think wilds of Eldraine. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, they had, they had a bonus sheet with some cool sideways strats for draft and stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So some of them were like bitter blossom and it's just like, this sucks, you know? Um, but some of them were like season of growth, which is just like rewards you for targeting your own creatures and yeah. stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah. If I get like, two season of growths and then there's like maybe an uncommon and a rare in the main set that also kind of like worked well with that stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. you got a little stew going, yeah, that's you know? Cool. So like the re- replayability of it was also kind of like through the roof, at least for me. Cause I wanted to do like all the things at least once. Right. Yeah. Sideways archetypes. They're worth a lot. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, for, for this specifically, like one, one class set, you're sort of, building out the color pie right we're like that, this is just like a, a mono purple set yeah I mean, that's, that's close enough but because it is a set uh you still need it to feel like there are multiple things to be doing like you don't want everyone to be doing like oh yeah we this is just like the blue red set everyone has to draft blue red yeah and they all have the same blue red deck and they play exactly the same fashion no we were uh very big on you know, not not only having three distinct heroes, which in the set, which obviously will bring their own archetype and modes of play, but having sub archetypes within those heroes themselves and uh, doing it where a lot of our archetypes come from the diversity of classes. Like our game is just talked about in very class centric terms. When we talk metagames, we talk about the number of class heroes that are in them. Uh, when you talk limited format, you talk about you talk about classes. What classes do you want to be in? What classes do you want to draft in a limited format? Uh, how do you draft this class in a limited format? And so when you bring that down to one class, all of the heuristics and archetypes really change a lot. Um, and for the people who took time to unpack that complexity, they were really rewarded with, you know, I, I certainly have had many folks say it was what they felt to be our deepest draft set ever. And then there were folks who didn't like it too. Like I don't want to paint uh, a picture where like we never get anything wrong and everyone everyone loves everything we do you know serving a tcg player base is just <laughs> people want very different things you're you're trying to serve a hundred headed hydra and make sure each of those heads is happy and it's yeah you got to feed them all and yeah, it's just like I, it's I never going to work out but if you can have some people really love the thing you do uh for each go around i think i think that's an awesome place to be and i think we hit on this particular uh goal and for the people who missed out like hopefully you know, you're eating good the last set or yeah, the next we're one, the next you know? Set. Yep. And that's the other thing, too, that I really love about Flesh and Blood is that we play a very long game and we're willing to, like, go through ebbs and flows. We have, you know, years and years of stuff planned out in advance and are looking to make the game for the next, you know, 15, 20 years for sure. And 
uh, when you get to do that kind of planning, you can have a little patience. You can, you know, you can take risks in spots and be like, it's okay if this risk doesn't pan out because we'll come back next year and we'll do something different. And uh, the people who are coming along for the ride are, feels like they're really getting rewarded for it. It feels nice to be able to offer that to them. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like you are hitting the note of what these recent limited sets have done for me, where it's like I know that basically every three months, like I'm going to get a fairly uh, novel, unique experience. Yeah, and that, right? that's actually the best thing. And the, we, we finally just came into our own. So our most recent set is Bright Lights. The set before that was not a limited set. And basically, previously, things were going in the flesh and blood progression, limited set, non-limited set team was just not built out and we didn't have enough resources to make limited set limited set limited set we are now deep with many sets in the tank of designing limited set only designing limited sets like we're just in on designing limited sets and only the first one of our sets in that new paradigm has actually been released with many many more behind it and so people are only getting right now their first taste of oh what does it mean when flesh and blood gets a new limited environment every three months um, and I, I think some of like old holdovers, oh no, this limited set wasn't for me. So now I have nothing for a year. Yeah. And it's like, no, just, no, just, just wait, get you on the next one. Just wait. It's and coming from my limited experience doing dev stuff. Like when I was at wizards there, there was a lot of that, that I felt too. Like <laughs> it's so weird because easily the coolest part for me, like I, I thought it was like just being in the building, making the cards, whatever. But like when the cards started getting previewed yep. and seeing the community's reactions to specific things and seeing what people latched on to, what they really loved, what they didn't love, uh, that was the best part for me. And a lot of it was like, well, you know, I really don't like this decision or uh, the way that this thing plays out and, and so much of it for, for me was like, I, I know some of the things that are like coming down the pipeline and it's just like, you know, trust that we did have like some long-term vision yep. in mind where, you know, it, this is like your, your base response. And it's like, yeah, like we, we knew that this was going to be a thing. And like, we, we, we prepped for that. We made sure to make it so people's basest fears were not going to come to fruition or whatever. But so, let me ask you this question. So you, you did that. You did that. I work, did do that. And you set up, you know, your outs and your answers down the road and you, you took care of your players. And well, I left after six months, so I didn't, I didn't get a chance to like ride it out for the long term, you know, but there were also some things that happened where like we, we did like a, we announced like a different rotation, but like it just got walked back before yep. it actually happened, you know, and yep. whatever, but, uh, continue. Sorry. I was, I was going to ask if when you delivered on those things, if anyone ever rescinded their previous criticisms. No, see, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, mostly it was just like, well, yeah, I said that six months ago, but maybe now there's a different thing to complain about and yep, new cycle moves on. Yep. Exactly. And, and no one ever goes back and like fact checks your work, which do you like, think we ever went back and held ourselves accountable? Like obviously now I've completely switched sides where I engage with content creators as they make content about my game. And I think back to the way we made content and I, I do feel like we occasionally held ourselves accountable. Like sure. We moved on from some things. I don't think it was ever to dodge 
accountability though. I think it was just because like other things popped up. And when we were just like wholeheartedly wrong about some shit, we own that over and over and over, I think. Uh, I wouldn't say over and over and over, at least publicly, but the, for, I forget who I said that. man, like we would pick a number one card that would be absolute shit and it would be a running meme about how bad that pick was for the next six months on our podcast. I, I think it would maybe get brought up like three or four times in that six months. I don't think it was that okay. much. Eh, maybe. But I, I forget who I said I would take one time, honestly. Most of the time, like just, just one. Oops, I got this one wrong. Yeah. And um, they, they do happen. I don't want to say it never happens. But like on the whole, a lot of it just gets passed by. No, it does. But I, I forget who said this to me, but it, it was something along the lines of like uh, someone making a comment about how I'm, I'm hard on others, which is true. I certainly am. Like it, it is not very nice a lot of the time and not certainly fair because, you know, like people are, are doing their best in a lot of instances, mm-hmm. but it, w- it was specifically being brought up in relation to like, I'm, I'm way harder on myself and they noticed that. Uh, and it's, it's just fucking true, man. Like, yeah. like straight up, like, Whatever any sort of like criticism or even, uh, you know, malice laced vitriol someone could lob my way, I have already like said it to myself or thought about it about myself. Sure. Yeah. And, and in, so, in, like, does that, do you think that means when you like are lobbing that criticism and you're like, it's actually soft criticism to you because you are so used to just it is. hitting yourself with a hammer? Basically. Yeah. But like, I, I still need to temper it more in the other direction. Yep. No, I, I think I have the same problem. And, and, and generally, like, a lot of the time is, like, when, when I am super hard on someone, it's not because I dislike the person. It's generally, like, from a place of love because I care about that person so much. And uh, s- this is certainly unfair, but it's like, oh, like, I expect better of them yeah. or whatever. Or, like, I, I, I want them to reach their potential mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it's, it's honestly not the best way to go about things. And I'm, I'm trying to work on that and fix it and certainly making more of an attempt to like gas people up mm-hmm. when they do stuff that is like good and like outside of the normal scope of how they would operate on any given random day or whatever. You know, I, th- I think that that's more healthy is to just like reward with treats than like, you know, punishing bad behavior yep. or whatever. But, uh, in terms of like holding ourselves accountable, like whenever whenever I said something that was wrong, and like I I know what my takes are. My takes are consistent, and so if I say a thing and I'm fairly certain that it is true, so I'm like going kind of hard in the paint about it, and then it ends up not being true. Like if you know me at all, you know that. I have come down hard on myself in response to that. And I've certainly taken the steps to not make that same mistake again and like try and figure out why I thought that given the information that I had and like, was there any way that I should have known what the right answer was Mm. or like maybe I should have like tempered my take a little bit and, and whatever, you know, like for, for our, our top 10 episodes and stuff like that, I think that's, the, the easiest thing to point to in terms of like, you know, did, did we say or do some dumb shit because we're literally like stack ranking things. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, there are countless 
things that we got wrong and I certainly learned from even if I'm not going about that process publicly. Mm. But you and I talked behind the scenes a lot about trying to refine the process for specifically our top 10 shows and I I wanted to get them as right as possible as much as the time yeah. of the time, you know. And I, I cared about that a lot. And as much as I cared about that, it's like a, a silly listicle right. <laughs> podcast, Almost right? throwaway content. And I, I care way more about any individual take that I'm willing to put on the internet. Because here's the other thing is that... Particularly putting it in writing, man. For me, like yeah. putting it in writing has a different like vibe and connotation than something you say in a podcast. It's it, it's more permanent. Like, yeah, yeah, you can technically go back and like delete your tweet or whatever, but like I'm too lazy to do that shit, you know? Yeah. So if, if I am saying something, I am the type of person where I'm not shooting from the hip. Uh, it's possible I was when I was younger. Uh, like my confidence level was probably not as high as it should have been for me to be saying some of the stuff that I was when I was younger. But like in, in my old age, like I hate being wrong, man. And you know what I am going to do to ensure that I am very rarely wrong in the public sphere is like, I'm not going to say shit unless I know it to be true. And so then when I do mess up and I do say something that ends up being untrue or off base or whatever, that makes me feel horrible because that's kind of all I'm trying to do is just like have the best track record. Yep. That all makes a lot of sense. Uh, it is, it is strange. I, I, I probably have double standards for podcasting and tweeting now that I think more about it because podcasting is like this stream of consciousness thing where you have to put out an hour and a half of words on a week to week basis. It's a lot of words, man. For me, that's like 95% of the words I'm going to say in a given week probably. So I'm dumping a lot of content out there at once and I, I don't have the same level of like, oh, every single word that comes out of my mouth has to be exactly correct and on point. Like at some point, I just have to produce thoughts and that's what people actually want from me. It's okay if those thoughts are wrong, uh, but like still a level of ownership should always be given to those thoughts and a level of accountability. I think that still stays constant. Uh, I do think physically writing something is a different act for some reason, like just especially when it's like I only have 280 characters to choose from. So I chose every single word in this pretty carefully and like... I think it has to be correct. And then the, the problem with that is that like if you put together 280 characters, it turns out you do not have enough space to say everything that people want to expect or want or expect you to say. They're able to then go after you for the things you didn't say. <laughs> that, that's why, kind of why I like the podcasting is because I, I feel like I have the time yeah, to provide the context. Yep. And overwhelmingly I can't tell you, though, so. I can't tell you how often like I will say something on the internet. And then the response to it is, well, you didn't talk about this thing. And I'm like, no, I didn't. You're, I just don't have the words. Like, there's no space. Where was I supposed to put it? Like, I was already, you know, min-maxing per letter for my word choice. Like, I don't I don't have any more space to say exactly every single thing I'm thinking when I'm putting out this tape. And if I did a five-tweet long thread, you wouldn't have read you all of it anyway. It, yeah. So it's, yeah. I mean, it, it all comes back to, like, the incentives around social media communication not being 
in favor of good modes of communication. They're in favor of creating controversy and conflict. It's and all it's all about dunks, man. Just one liners. Yep. You get in, you get done, and then get your dunk out. Yeah, even even if you're wrong, news cycle moves on quick. Don't even have to delete that stuff. People might dig it up like ten years later or whatever, but yep. Who cares? Um, I don't know. I wish I I feel like there's not enough shame in the world. <laughs> Everyone needs a little bit more shame. Like it, it is, it is, it's an incredible motivator. Uh, I agree. And I think that public shaming when it is warranted, it, it does work. I like it's morally, it is not the best way to go about things, but it is very effective there's, in a lot of instances. But there's a huge problem. There's a huge problem with that. And that is that there is, a lot of people who do not feel shame. They just don't. Like, it's just not an emotion they experience. And for folks like you and I, like, I can just point to a very clear example of this. I just did a, um, uh, like, a video podcast appearance for someone, a content creator in the flesh and blood space. And they were a really thoughtful content creator. They came, they brought me this really well thought out script, uh, really thoughtful, insightful questions. And I was just really happy with how they were using their platform and happy to spend like an hour discussing uh, their concerns with them. And I think it came through in the podcast and, uh, you know, of the, however many, you know, 60, 70 comments that were on this appearance, 58, 59 of them. Thank you so much for giving your time. Uh, it was really, uh, you know, it really gave me a lot of faith in flesh and blood to see, these stances and it's so, so great of you to come. And I feel so good about the game that it's in your hands. And there's like one or two people who are like, well, you said this and this doesn't make any sense. Do we look like clowns to you? Jeez, if this is what the game's going to be like, it's going to be garbage. And I'm like, oh man, this person's right. I'm garbage. And I have, <laughs> I've brought nothing but shame to this game. Why did I even agree to go on this podcast and say anything? And it's like, man, there's, <laughs> there's so much shame waiting at my doorstep that I can just let in at a moment's notice. Like it doesn't even take, you don't need to shame me. You can just be like, well, I didn't really like what you said. And I'm like, fuck, I'm completely ashamed. I should never open my mouth again. Yep. But then there's this other class of people who just like has none of that. Like they are just more than happy to put the nonsense out there repeatedly and get dunked on. And they're just like, nah, it doesn't affect me. And then they just keep rolling. And uh, it, it's a, a big shame imbalance that we're presently dealing with in our society. And I think people like you and I are going to suffer uh, disproportionately under the shame regime. Yeah, because if I if I say something wrong, I feel an immense amount of shame. And that is the best motivator, again, to make it so I am not ever shooting from the hip or like saying a thing that I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm qualified to but say or I don't have enough information. ask yourself to say an hour and a half worth of words per week into a podcast – and get nothing wrong. That's not fair. That's not a fair ask. It's not. But again, I'm harder on myself than I am on anyone else, right? And like part of that is also just like setting myself up for failure so that I can, you know, you know, shame is shame is knocking. Shame wants yeah. to come in, no, right? Absolutely. So I, I I try and do that on the podcast. I try and temper that with like, you know, here is my confidence level. And I hope that when I'm saying, you know, like I think, or like, you know, maybe if this happens, then maybe this will happen, that people know that I am speculating and that is not me saying like, 
oh, with the utmost confidence, like this thing is fact, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I hope people can understand that those things are very different. And when, when I am doing the speculation or like trying to work something out out loud, that that is much different than me taking a hard line stance and the, like it's something you can dunk on me later for, you know, it's just like th those things are very different. But I very rarely see that style of thought going on in the Twitter space, for example, which, you know, again, granted, lack, lack of characters, lack of ability to provide context or for like why you think this way or whatever. But most people are just like, uh, if you just took everything at face value, it's like, wow, all these people are presenting like all these things that are allegedly facts, but uh, clearly there is a lot of conflict here because you see like multiple people on every side of every yep. argument, yep. right? All presenting it as factual. And it's like, clearly that's not correct. So like some of these people are, are doing it wrong. Um, and I, I try to be like very clear about where I am. And uh, Dave and I have actually brought this up on the last couple of podcasts in terms of like, just being effective communicators in general. Yeah. And we're, we're learning that working with each other in terms of how we communicate. And if I say, you know, like if I tell him that something is good or like, Oh, I kind of, the, the example was like when he was going to the California RCU standard and he was, he showed me like this Esper legends deck and my thought at the time was the format is a little too big for this. Like I think like things like reanimator are going to be like a little bit more popular. And you're just like this small ball kind of like weenie aggro deck that I think is just going to get eaten alive by these decks eventually over the course of a 15 round tournament. Yeah. Right. But like in my, my just like snapshot text reply to him was like, um, I'm pretty sure this is like a, a little, or I think this is like a little bit small ball, but like I'm also, I don't want to speak from a place of confidence because I know that he's been putting in work, like testing and stuff. But I'm just like, hey, I, th I think that this is where the format is. You know, like take take this information for what you will or whatever. And he was just like, yeah, I didn't really give that much uh, weight or whatever because it, you didn't sound very sure of yourself. And it's like, well, I knew I wasn't 100% right. But like I knew I, I thought it was true enough to the point where I said it, which means it's more of like 70 whereas he thought it was 40 yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's so like we're, we're learning how to communicate with each other. And I think in terms of the podcasting stuff, some of it does require you to, to have been around for a while and, and understand how I communicate. And I think the folks who have been around for a long time and have listened to me a long time or like people who have been my friends for a long time, like they probably understand yeah. uh, like the, the words that I use tend to get chosen for a reason. And a lot of it is like, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Well, I want to communicate clearly. I think it's weird too, where you've built sort of this audience who does have that level of formality with you and the understanding of you. And then you step outside that audience. And it's like, it's like the Twitter re retweet thing again. Like you can kind of, I mean, I, I have a personal really good example of this. You can spend... 10 years in a public space showing that you are uh, compassionate, thoughtful, always willing to give people time to sort of discuss their ideas and, uh, you know, always 
willing to engage with all conversation and criticism in good faith. But then you tell someone to fuck off and it gets retweeted and people have none of the context about who you are <laughs> as a person. You just seem like a tremendous asshole. And there's, there's no like middle ground there. Like if I see a random person telling someone to fuck off seemingly at the drop of a hat, knowing nothing about their relationship with each other, knowing nothing about that random person and their propensity to be kind, to be thoughtful. Um, then they're just somebody telling someone to fuck off. And there's like, there's no middle ground there. And it's this sort of comfort you get when you have a large class of people who have learned your methods of communication. They understand how you communicate. They understand who you are as a person. And it can be almost dangerous because you come to rely on that and you come to rely on like, oh, surely enough people know me by now where like they, they know I would never just arbitrarily tell someone to fuck off. There's got to be more here. People don't know that. Like that doesn't actually happen when you escape your spaces. Yeah. And I mean, also there's sometimes a willingness to just, even though you've been following this person for 10 years and you should have a, a pretty good mental model of who they are, how they communicate, whatever, there, there's a, a non-zero amount of times where people are just like, all right, I'm going to ignore that and choose to view this in the least charitable yeah. possible way yeah, yeah, possible. Sure. And it's just like, what, how did this happen? I don't know. But, you know, dangers of existing in the internet while also saying things. Yep. Yeah, it can be tough. It can be, but... Anyone, you want to tell the fuck off on the podcast while we're here today? I'm going to tell you every now and then. It's, you get a rush from it. And it, I'm not saying it, it's a good idea. I, you know, I can regret things in the aftermath. I, I don't know that I should have told anyone to fuck off, but yeah, every now and then, you know, you got to get one of those out. I mostly just don't even want to give those folks any air. Yep. That's smart. That's, that's the correct thing to do. And I, I agree with you. That is, that is how you should handle it. But do you want to tell someone to fuck off? Like you, you could. I, I do, but you I'm not. Gonna, right I do, now. but I, I'm not gonna. Okay. It would be kind of cool. It's just I'll like, come back and bait you to tell someone to fuck. I, off. I do think. I do think that uh, podcasts could do with like recurring bits, you know, and we we certainly don't have any of those. Like there are running jokes and stuff, which mm. are kind of nice, but. Yeah, what if just like end of every podcast, I was just like, all right, fuck off. Yeah, yeah, fuck you. This like, who do I want to fuck off this week? This person. Yeah, that's not bad. It's not bad, but I'm not gonna do it. Okay. Uh, I I don't I I do think it would potentially tarnish like the charitable, in good faith nature that I have tried to help cultivate it probably does but it's ideally spread you need to trade against your equity like you've built up (laughs) all of this goodwill and at some point you have to be like all right well i want to use this now like this one time i just i i don't want to give this person this engagement and this benefit of the doubt i just want to tell them to fuck off just once can i do it the answer is no you can't do it no i i i could i could certainly trade against the brand and you are right that i should find ways to trade against the brand Mm -hmm. but it, it always feels bad, even though it's uh, it's similar to just, you know, like how, how our, our morals, anytime we do something morally, it's generally costing us money as a result, mm. you know? Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's along those lines. It's like, well, I've been, I've been doing that 100%, so I'm just going to keep doing it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy we never wavered from that for what it's worth, so... 
Yeah, maybe you're maybe you're right. Maybe you should keep not telling people to fuck off. I don't I don't think I'm right. I just <laughs> it's just hard to cross that line. And also, like, who knows what happens when you cross that line? I do. <laughs> I know I know very well. Well man, uh have you have you regretted coming to lovely Pittsburgh? No, no, I've had a good time. Uh, good to hang out with you. Like I said, I was pleased by what I found in the magic space. Like, I'm not trying to come back next week and do it again, but uh, you know, it was nice. It was nice to check in, see what was going on. Uh, I met my all-time favorite magic artists, which was really exciting and nice. I met uh, Kaja and Phil Foglio, who, for whatever reason, when I began playing magic in 1994, it was their art that stood out to me. Uh, above all others, and as a unique art style that they deployed, uh, especially Phil's work, which is very like cartoonish. And yeah, their their stuff is different for sure. Yeah, like, and it just uh, it really sung to me and appealed to me. And I've never seen them at an event before, uh, and I got to go tell them how much I appreciated their art, which was really cool. And uh, it's funny because this is this is one of those instances where you go up and you're like, "Hey, I'm a really big fan," and they're like, "Oh, so obviously you've been reading my webcomic that I've had up for 20 years." Yeah, and- the answer. The answer was no. And you're just like, okay, I guess I'm not as big of a fan. I was a very big fan of their magic artwork. I prefaced (laughs) that you were always my favorite magic artist, which was 100% true, no bullshit. Um, So I I hope that even though I was not familiar with their most recent work, they still took joy in my appreciation of their their magic artwork and what it brought to my life and my engagement with magic. Obviously, that was a huge part of why I was drawn was like the art on the cards spoke to me. Same. Um, And they were a huge part of that. So that was cool. Good to hang out with you. Uh, we had a good sandwich today, which I appreciated. And uh, yeah, drives a little long. It's okay. I'll drive back tomorrow. I think if your drive was like six hours and 40 minutes, like Google said it would be. Yeah, easy. I would, it would no probably regrets. be fine. Yeah. Nine is a bit much. It's a lot. Kind of feel like you got lied to. I don't know exactly what happened. Bit. Yeah, yeah I, I came by myself. So, you know, just nine hours in the car by myself. Got some thinking time in. Sounds like we're now getting vacuuming time in outside of our hotel. So I don't know if that's being picked up by our mics, but yeah. everyone's enjoying that. I was just going to ignore that and be like, you know, nothing to hear here, folks. Don't worry about that. No hotel vacuuming going on. Uh, this has been good. I'm glad I'm glad you got me to come out. Uh, I honestly think this is the first eternal weekend I've been to. I think me too. And I think that... There is an alternate timeline where this would have been our jam. Yeah. We would have loved this shit. Yeah, just like prepping for it, like all in on Eternal Weekend. Um, yeah, maybe. It's odd. It's odd that I never made it to one of these before. And I've, I've been to, you know, Pittsburgh before. And it usually is in Pittsburgh, right? Philadelphia sometimes maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Northeast. Yeah, always in Pennsylvania. Never, never too far from me. But I just never end up there. I don't know why. I remember one year I had like a cracked vintage deck because it was the year that I can actually tell you what year it was. It was 2014 because I was prepping for the bar exam at the same time. But also uh, the Power 9 had come to Magic Online. And so you could play vintage for the first time on Magic Online. You'd never been able to yeah. before then. And so I was just playing a ton of vintage. And I had a cracked Storm deck. Like It was very different from what everyone else did. Like an ad nauseum Storm deck when I was playing uh, Pact and Negation in it and just like Hard Disruption Storm deck that I was just trashing, trashing Magic Online with. And I'm like, damn, I'm going to go win this 
this vintage tournament. Like, there's no chance I'm not the vintage champion after this. And I borrowed the Lotuses and Moxon and all that I needed from my friend Ryan and had it all sleeved up, ready to go in a deck box. And then the morning came and I was just like, eh, I don't feel like going. So I, <laughs> I didn't go, but I was this close to going to an eternal weekend before and then I did not quite make it. I don't know. I feel like there might have been some overlap where like, Maybe there was a West Coast GP and I needed pro points or something, or like there was plausible. there was like an overseas pro tour or something. But there were definitely a bunch that I just remember skipping and honestly don't really know why. It was just it, it wasn't ever tied to It was all about the qualifications back then. Yeah, right? it that's wasn't you, it wasn't ever tied to the organized play stuff. The, you needed organized play involvement. But now we ain't got none of that really. Nah, no, that's bullshit. $1.5 million Flesh and Blood Pro Tour, if anyone's interested. Just putting it out there, just saying. $1.5 million. We got PTQs, essentially. We got quasi-GPs. We got slightly smaller local GPs. Get 100 and so people. Can win that. Get an event. Invite to any any event you want to use it on. You get to bank it, store it, use it whenever you want. You can go buy an invite if you want. You can buy one of those banked invites from other people and participate on the pro tour go after those millions of dollars if you want i'm just saying it's out there brian did tell me last night that he thought that there was a possibility that i could become the best flesh and blood player in the universe so if there is if there if there's crazy if there wasn't if there's anyone out there who thinks that they're as good as i am or better uh that could be you too i'm sure it applies to you could be Good luck.